This is Jonah Chester and Rachel Fields with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers announced today that TikTok, the popular video sharing app, will be banned on state phones. The concern comes from the fact that TikTok is owned and operated by ByteDance, a Chinese company that may give user data to the Chinese government, according to the Associated Press. A growing number of states are choosing to ban the apps for security concerns, following the lead of the United States military, which has already banned the app on all military devices. National lawmakers have also played with the idea of banning the app more generally, although up to this point, nothing has come of their efforts. Wisconsin Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahieu announced Thursday that Republican legislators in the Senate might support the legalization of medical marijuana. The move is something of a surprise, as Lemahieu has had previously been opposed to all marijuana usage until it was approved by the FDA, but Le- But Lemahieu indicated that opinions within the Republican caucus may have changed. That's according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. It's unclear whether Republicans in the Assembly would support medical legalization as well, and the Assembly and the Senate would have to agree before legalization could proceed. State Democratic leaders have long advocated for legalization of marijuana, and Governor Evers is likely to propose legalization again in the next state budget. Marijuana legalization has spread across the country and through the Midwest, with partial or complete legalization in both Illinois and Michigan, with a likely legalization push underway in Minnesota. A total of 36 states have legalized marijuana for at least medical usage. Governor Evers announced today his intent to appoint Bond, James Bond, as Secretary of the Wisconsin Department of Veteran Affairs. Bond will become the first openly gay cabinet member in Wisconsin, according to a review of records by the Legislative Reference Bureau. In a statement, Bond says that he looks forward to helping deliver the benefits and services that veterans have earned. A new abortion clinic opened in Rockford last week in response to the Supreme Court overturning Roe v. Wade last year. The new clinic, begun by Madison doctor Dennis Christensen, is hoping to serve the Rockford community as well as abortion needs for southern Wisconsin. The clinic specializes in pill abortions, early pregnancy treatments that are minimally invasive, and account for 54% of all abortions nationally, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The demand for pill abortions in Wisconsin has increased following the statewide ban on abortions, in part because they can be obtained by mail or through relatively accessible out-of-state facilities like the one in Rockford. The total cost for getting an abortion at the clinic is currently around $500, and a planned second surgical abortion and a planned second surgical abortion clinic is under construction in Rockford as well. The Madison Common Council president announced the city has received two applications to fill the District 12 vacancy before the January 6th deadline. The two applicants are Dorothy Borchard and Barbara Vetter, both of whom are former alders of the city. Next, the applicants will undergo an interview process before being appointed to serve out the rest of the term until the April elections. Neither of the applicants have announced their intention to run this spring to fill the seat. Madison's Police and Fire Commission voted today to stop requiring credit checks on prospective police officers. The move comes as the police department attempts to increase the diversity of their workforce, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The department has mostly been hitting its diversity goals, with percentages of the police that are black or Hispanic approximately in line with the demographic makeup of the city. The department still lags in gender parity, with only 29% of the commissioned workforce being women. And the department still has significantly disproportionate arrest statistics, 
with black individuals making up about 42% of people arrested by the city, while being about 7.4% of city residents. Madison Charter School, One City Schools, announced on Thursday that it would be closing its 9th and 10th grade classes after only one semester, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The charter school decided the departure of five teachers since the beginning of the school year as their major for driving force in the decision. The students of those classes will be transitioning back into public schools at the end of January, and the Madison Metropolitan School District superintendent pledged resources to help the families with the transition. One city has been struggling as a charter school, with more than 69% of their third-grade students scoring below basic on the Wisconsin Forward Standardized Test, which is more than double the rate of any other Dane County school system. A student-planned drag show at Madison East High School has been postponed due to safety concerns. The Capital Times reports that the event was planned by the school's Gender and Sexuality Alliance as a way to support LGBTQ students and staff. But after a lawyer with the conservative law firm, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, posted about the event on Twitter, it was then picked up by the anti-LGBTQ account Libs of TikTok. Unrelated Twitter posts by the school district were then bombarded with tweets accusing the district of grooming children. MMSD spokesperson Tim Lamond says that they received several messages that caused concerns for student safety, and the event had to be postponed until a later date. School board president Ali Muldrow called the tweets condemning the drag show irresponsible and dangerous, and chastised former Governor Scott Walker for calling the planned performance a, quote, strip show. Conservatives, including the libs of TikTok account, have targeted drag shows in recent months, and in some cases the shows have been targeted by armed protesters. Drag shows are not, as former Governor Scott Walker erroneously tweeted, a strip show. The performances typically feature someone identifying as a man dressing in women's clothing to lip-sync a song. And now, on to today's top stories. Prior to the holidays, a bald eagle died just outside of Milwaukee following a suspected shooting. Officials with the Department of Natural Resources say they're still looking into the matter and welcome any tips from the public. Mike Mowen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more. As the new year takes shape, Wisconsin officials say they're still trying to get to the bottom of a recent death involving a bald eagle and are asking for the public for help. Last month, the wounded animal was discovered just outside Milwaukee and later died during surgery. The Humane Society and the Department of Natural Resources say there's evidence the animal was shot. The DNR's Nick Mayoski says the probe continues and that any information from the public would certainly aid their investigation. If anybody has any information about the eagle or knows anything about what happened, to contact our uh, Wisconsin DNR tip line. That number is 1-800-847-9367. Eagles and their nests are federally protected under the Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act and the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. Wounding or killing one of these animals comes with a $100,000 fine and one year in prison for a first offense. The punishments increase for a second violation. The DNR says Wisconsin's bald eagle population has rebounded after previously being on the endangered species list. Myaski says he understands how startling cases like these can be for the public. I can definitely understand how people are passionate about our national symbol and icon and being in the line of work that I'm in, whether it be an eagle or another wildlife. I mean, I don't like to see anybody intentionally harm wildlife outside of regulated hunting and trapping. 
Earlier this year, the agency was investigating another fatal shooting of a bald eagle. That incident also happened in the southeastern part of the state. It's unclear yet if there's any connection to what happened in December. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org. While the weather over the weekend was not exactly the warmest, there is a chance for some slightly warmer weather in the next few days. But with that warmer weather also comes a chance for some snow and rain showers throughout the week. WORT weather producer Caitlin Davis has more. After some serious fluctuations of real field temperatures outside, temperatures are finally starting to not have as dramatic as a change. And soon, we will be feeling a few decently warm days this coming week here in Madison. Current temperatures are setting at 36 degrees while feeling as though it's around 30 degrees due to the 80% cloud coverage and low wind speeds at 8 miles per hour coming from the south. Humidity is sitting at 77% and this pattern is going to continue into tonight. Temperatures tonight will drop down to 29 degrees but will still continue to feel a bit colder. Cloud coverage and humidity will continue to rise into the overnight hours into the morning. The sun is now rising at 7.28 a.m. and not setting until 4.42 p.m. What did the icy roads say to the car? Want to go for a spin? To prevent this from happening, make sure that your tires have good tread. This makes for safer commuting in the snow, wet, and icy conditions. Also, remember to keep an eye on your tire pressure in the cold temperatures, as it can decrease around 1 psi per 10 degrees dropped. With temperatures still being lower, remember to keep a coat, hat, and gloves in your car in case of it breaking down. Weather.gov also recommends keeping a weather survival kit in your vehicle during the winter time. Tomorrow's high is looking to reach 34 degrees with variably cloudy conditions. Light and variable winds will be taking place throughout the day, with winds throughout the day looking to be around 4 miles per hour. Humidity is looking to reach 84% during the daytime and increase overnight. Cloud coverage will continue to rise into the evening hours. Wednesday is looking to heat up into the low 40s, but will drop down to the 30s into the evening. Winds will continue to be light and variable between 5 to 10 miles per hour. And there will be a slight chance for some mixed rain and snow showers throughout the day with higher chances of it into the evening. Thursday's temperatures will be dropping back down to the lower 30s, again with some scattered snow showers in the morning and high cloud coverage. Winds will be ranging between 10 and 20 miles per hour with higher wind gusts. Temperatures into the evening will be dropping down to the low to mid-20s with continued high wind speeds. Friday is looking to reach a high of 30 degrees with continued high wind speeds between 10 and 15 miles per hour. There will be a very low chance for rain and snow showers and will likely not happen. Wind speeds into the evening will drop between 5 to 10 miles per hour. With your WORT weather report here in Madison, I'm your producer, Caitlin Davis. Last week was the filing deadline for candidates running for local office to submit the needed paperwork to run in the 2023 spring election. There are eight alder districts with more than two candidates in the race, meaning that all eight of those districts will head to a primary election on February 21st. One of those districts is District 2, representing the area on the north side of the Isthmus, and WORT producer Nate Weggehout kicked off our coverage of the candidates headed to a spring primary this February by talking with Colin Baryushak one of the three candidates running for that district. 
The 2023 spring primary election is on February 21st, and this year there will be eight districts with more than three candidates running for an alder seat, all of which will require a primary election. One of those districts is District 2. That district sits on the north side of the Isthmus downtown around the UW campus. Colin Berushak is one of the three candidates running for that district, and he joins me now by phone. Colin, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks, Nate, for having me. So just to start things off here, why don't you tell me about yourself, Colin? Uh, My name is Colin Barushak. I've lived in downtown Madison for nine and a half years now. I came to study at UW-Madison, and while I was there, I served on uh, the Student Association, the Associated Students of Madison, where I was um, responsible for keeping an eye on student segregated fees, and that was really my first role in public service. After that, I worked in the support staff role in the state Senate and observed the legislative process, spent many hours watching committee hearings and floor sessions. And I served the public and all the members of the state Senate. After that, when COVID hit, I went to continue my work in public service at the Department of Safety and Professional Services, where I licensed physicians, respiratory therapists, and other medical professionals. And now I came back to the state capitol building working for a state senator from Milwaukee where I do constituent casework and uh, help him create policy. I've served on two city committees. I'm currently on the Alcohol License Review Committee, and I previously served on the Vending Oversight Committee. And that was, uh, I was proud when I was on Vending Oversight to vote in favor of the permanent implementation of the popular streetery program. And Colin, why are you running for Alder of District 2? I'm running because after serving in these various public service roles in the background, I've learned enough and now I'm uh, capable to represent the people in District 2. I want to you know, provide them with the best possible service. I want to communicate with them frequently to understand their problems and to help them understand what's going on in the neighborhood and on the Common Council. I want to advocate for their positions at the Common Council on committees and boards. And I want to help them navigate city government so they can get their problems solved. You know, providing excellent service will help me better represent the district. It will help me continue my passion for public service and it'll, you know, help me make the best possible decisions for for the city. And what are some of the most pressing issues facing Madison that you would want to address? When I'm out doing doors and talking to neighbors in District 2, one of the biggest issues that I hear is affordable housing. Now, we have a housing shortage in Madison. We need to build 2,000 units every year just to keep up with population growth and 3,000 units immediately. We need to increase the housing supply to you know, you know, balance out the power between tenants and landlords and give you know, tenants and workers, the ability to negotiate fair rents and, you know, cost of living. And um, in addition, we need to provide stability for tenants. And one way I propose to do that is to provide a a tenant's right to counsel in eviction proceedings. That's a concept that's um, been explored in other areas, including Milwaukee County. And I would like to bring that to Madison. And finally, in order to get people to work, we need to, you know, provide uh, assistance with First, qualifying tenants for first month's rent and security deposit. That way we can get people to work in our crucial industries and you know, help them have access to the housing. Another big issue that I 
hear about is, is street safety. So we need to, you know, continue, we, we need to support the Clean Green Streets program and evaluate in, uh, the program as it goes on to make sure it really is providing complete streets, which it will be safer streets. And now you've touched on a few of these already, but I want to, you know, look a little bit more into some of the key issues facing Madison right now, starting off with transit. Uh, you know, bus rapid transit is set to take into effect this summer. How do you feel about the bus rapid transit? We, I, I support the bus rapid transit program. I think we need to pursue it, implement it, and continue continually evaluate the program and make sure that it's, you know, working equitably. The Common Council and the Mayor should be ready to tweak the program if concerns over ridership versus coverage are borne out. Some have expressed concerns that increasing ridership will reduce coverage and cause people who rely on the bus to not, you know, to, to have reduced access in favor of people who use the bus out of convenience. Now, um, if that turns out to be true, the Common Council should step in and and fix the program. But as it stands now, I I support bus rapid transit. And now you've already talked a bit about housing and District 2 represents a lot of students from the UW who have been facing rising housing prices and increased demands for apartments. What sort of key initiatives would you like to see to get more affordable housing in Madison? I think we we need to provide incentives for for development if there's uh, specific uh, zoning incentives that we can provide to encourage density downtown. I think we should in, increase the by right zoning, so uh, and, and which will cause the length of time it takes for projects to get developed to decrease. And I think we should streamline the discretionary approval process for new building projects. This should have the effect of incentivizing investment into a new building, which will increase the housing supply with a higher, you know, with more available units, it will cause the prices to come down. The city must also provide certain incentives for affordable housing. So that means allowing for smaller, you know, micro units where appropriate and um, also preserving and defending existing uh, affordable housing. So we must consider supply, stability, and subsidy at the same time, you know, give them equal weight in our deliberations. And now, finally, the F-35 fighter jets are set to uh, be coming into Madison this year. How, how do you feel about those jets? I think the, the, the fighter wing is a good asset to our community. I, I think we need to continually evaluate the impact of, of noise on, on the community and communicate with people in effective affected areas, you know, the science of, you know, noise pollution and other possible factors associated with the F-35s. But overall, the, I think the F-35 program is a good one for, the, for Madison. Now, Colin, sometimes issues get complicated at the city council. Now, let's say that there is an issue where some of your constituents want to see a policy happen and other constituents want to see the, the opposite happen. How, how would you handle that sort of situation? Well, it, it, it comes down to good communication. If I communicate with the constituents, keep them, you know, apprised of what's happening and they make them feel like they can always come to me, then I will have a good relationship with them and I can create trust uh, between myself and the constituents and I can serve to help explain the the uh, pros and cons of various policies. At the end of the day, not everyone is going to agree on everything. 
And if the people of District 2 elect me, they will be, I'll, I'll have to make sure that I communicate enough to gain their trust and make sure they understand what positions I take on issues and why. Now, Colin, getting away from specific policy questions, a little bit more about you. What do you do in your spare time? So when I'm not working at the state capitol, I am, I like to visit uh, the library, the central library in the wintertime. I like to do a lot of reading. In the summertime, I like to enjoy our bike paths. I have uh, a nice hybrid bike that is a one speed I'm I'm on I'm a and sometimes I ride at six but um, in the past couple years I switched from uh, a trek with like 24 speeds to a one speed and I find that it gives me a pretty good workout uh, Madison is an excellent bike biking community and uh, I would I would certainly support any efforts to make it even better do you have any favorite bike trails in Madison um I I like the capital city trail I do the lake loop I'm around Lake Monona and I also do a lake loop around Lake Mendota, which is not all covered by paths, but riding out in the, uh, when I get on the other side of the lake on Highway CV, it reminds me of my days as a, as a kid riding on the county highways in Kenosha County where I grew up. Well, Colin, as we're wrapping up here, do you have just any final thoughts that you would like uh, people to know? I just want everyone to know that this is an important primary election on February 21st, and it's going to be an important general election on April 4th. Uh, I encourage everyone to, you know, get registered, find your polling place and go vote because every election is important, including this one. I've been talking with Colin Barushak, one of three candidates running to represent District 2 on the Common Council. With three candidates in that race, it will head to a primary election on February 21st and the general election takes place on April 4th. Colin, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Nate. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Jonah Chester. Thanks for joining us. This Wednesday is the anniversary of the beginning of a 24,000-strong occupation of the Maheshwar Dam site in central India back in 1998. The victory was a small part of a larger grassroots movement against India's largest-ever dam project by the Save the Narmada movement. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. This Wednesday, January 11th, is the anniversary of the day in 1998, when 24,000 people began a sit-in protest at Maheshwar Dam site on the Namada River in central India, the start of a struggle that stopped the dam. The sit-in lasted 21 days. In April 1999, villagers staged a month-long demonstration and indefinite fast in Bhopal. Years of resistance included 12 more dam occupations and road blockades to slow down construction. Protesters endured state-sponsored violence and arrests. Germans and Americans also protested in their own countries to pressure energy corporations that invested in the dam to withdraw from the project. In May of 2002, Indian protesters targeted banks and financial corporations in Mumbai to block investment in the dam. Eventually, under mass public pressure on December 20, 2002, the government stopped its funding and construction work halted. 
the people won. This Meheshwar Dam saga was just one small part of a very large grassroots movement started in the mid-80s to protect the Namada River and the millions who live nearby. The protest movement is called the Namada Bacha Andolon NBA, or in English, the Save the Namada Movement. The movement formed in response to government plans to build a series of dams on the river. The plan included 30 major, 136 medium, and 3,000 minor dams, one of the largest dam projects since Indian independence. Critics say the government did not intend to discuss plans with the communities that had lived along the river for centuries, nor respect their natural rights to the land. The Namada River flows through 800 miles of fertile farmlands, hills, and forests in central India to reach the Arabian Sea. The Namada is considered a goddess by many who live along the river. The river crosses an incredibly diverse social and physical geography and runs through three different Indian states, Madhya Pradesh, Maharashtra, and Gujarat. The NBA movement has been active through decades of hard struggle, including educating people living in the Namada River Basin about the role of capital in the government, who pays and who benefits. The NBA movement also created alternatives to damming up the river. They developed natural, decentralized methods of water harvesting, large tanks that could recharge thousands of wells, and small water harvesting structures using low-cost techniques. NBA's research also showed that despite government promises of providing water to drought-prone poorer regions, most of the dam's project's water was going to politically influential water-rich regions in central Gujari for sugarcane crops. Water parks and tourist resorts were also planned. The NBA's movement's resistance led to brutal clashes with the police firing on protesters and even attacking pregnant women. In 1991, the NBA organized 7,000 people to march in the bitter winter cold and when stopped to camp and fast. In the mid-80s, protesters initially opposed one of the largest dams planned, Sadar Saruvar, over displacement of villagers. Government rules said they were supposed to be given comparable land before any submergence happened. But by 1988, villagers had learned no comparable land was available. Without this assurance, just compensation was unlikely, so the goal became blocking the entire project. Although incredible public pressure led the World Bank to withdraw in the early 90s from Sadar Saruvar, the Indian government built it anyway in 2006 with state funds. Today, almost all of the dams have been completed along the Namada River. This is a heartbreaking loss after decades of struggle. Estimates differ but up to a million and a half people had been displaced with varying degrees of compensation. But the fight back allowed people to remain in their homes years longer and gain them better compensation. It showed the people power that mounted incredible pressure in the face of an oppressive state. The World Bank was forced to document some of their issues and ultimately withdraw its funding setting possible future precedent. It likely has dampened the Indian government's appetite for future giant projects. These games provide crucial lessons as humanity struggles for survival against global climate change. And that is our story for today. For the past is the past, I'm Harry Richardson. The Voigt Farm on Madison's east side is slated for redevelopment, replacing the farmland with 1,500 housing units and public park access. 
The project is being helmed by two developers, Stonehouse and Threshold Development, to turn the once privately held farmland into a bustling community. But neighbors say that they are concerned about the plan to build on the plot, saying that the land should instead be used to create a nature preserve and a community garden for all to use. Earlier today, a public affair host, Douglas Haynes, spoke with both the developer, Alder Grant Foster, who represents the area around Voigt Farm, and Colleen Robinson, interim president of the community grassroots group Save the Farm. This is an excerpt of Haynes' conversation with Robinson about why she is fighting to save the farmland. To hear from Helen Bradbury with Stonehouse Development and Alder Foster, listen to the full interview at wortfm.org. So far, in what you've learned about what Starkweather Creek LLC has presented, and they had a community meeting in in December, what elements of Save the Farm's vision seem compatible with the vision of the developers? First of all, I'd like to just stress that we've been as much part of the process as we possibly could be, although that's less than we were hoping over the course of the past year. And we brought a lot of ideas from Save the Farm and the partners that we had already been talking with and working with to the developers and wrote briefing packets on all three land uses that we were thinking about. And these briefing packets had the idea, had potential partners laid out, had some analysis of of funding possibilities um, that we had put together, although that needed to be more robust. And they have taken a lot of that into consideration. So some of the partners that we had pointed them to, they already knew about, some were new to them, and they've started to work with some of those folks. So um, that was encouraging to us um, at the start. And I think in alignment right now um, are ideas about natural areas preservation. So certainly both groups seem to want to see uh, 34 acres of um, floodplain and other low-lying areas be restored and protected. However, this is undevelopable land. So the development team at Starkweather really wouldn't have other options for that space. So we're happy to know that they want to partner with parks and a public-private partnership to make really great high-quality restoration happen there. On the other hand, that needs to happen anyway. Uh, a development with really good community spaces and safe living and um, desirable housing is not going to happen next to necessarily some of these areas that are full of road infill and, and so forth right now. So restoration needs to happen regardless. We're happy to partner on that. We hope the, the city will will help with that as well. But just to be clear, that would have to happen anyway. Those acres are not being developed regardless, but that is a place where, where we're aligned. Another place where uh, I think we are aligned is actually worth talking about as a separate issue, but there has been some interest uh, within the city to, um, and it was, it was sort of mentioned in the Milwaukee Street Special Area Plan about extending Chicago Avenue from the sort of northern area of this property across Starkweather Creek to Fair Oaks. And um, the development team and Save the Farm and the community are very much in alignment against that Chicago Avenue extension. It would really put a complete break in the greenway. It would be wildly expensive 
and very resource intensive and very detrimental uh, environmentally and in terms of community building on this site. So those are two places where we really align. I'll continue on, on some of the other areas, if that's fine. I'd love to come back to that, Colleen, because we have a caller on the line, actually, um, with a okay. question, and, and we'll come back to those areas of alignment. Tony, welcome to A Public Affair. Uh, thank you very much. I have a question about the pond that's on that site. Um, I've heard different things from different people that either it's um, it's very clean and safe to, to be in or that it's actually very polluted. So I have a question about the pond and also about cleanup costs on the site how are there a lot of places that need to be cleaned up on that site thank you great questions tony in terms of cost of that ecological restoration that has to happen there and the prospects for it colleen can you shed any light on that uh yeah both the pond and a lot of areas on the site um, need a lot of resources a lot of investment a lot of money a lot of physical labor a lot of expertise to restore these spaces so again, it's going to take a huge partnership. It's nothing the city can do all by themselves. It's nothing that friends of Starkweather Creek could do all by themselves. And it's nothing that development team is going to take on all by themselves. So a partnership is needed, but it isn't realistic for us to say, okay, well, the best expertise in terms of restoration is with the parks department and friends groups. So the development team will give this 34 acres to these entities and these entities can manage that from there. It's lovely that that would be in public ownership then. And at the same time, a reality needs to be uh, understood about the cost and hours that it would take to get that restoration done. And the fact that giving that potential land to these public entities would automatically save a ton of money for the developers because it would relieve them from their park impact fees for the remainder of the development. So we would like to see some investment from the developer's side along with public ownership eventually in making a great deal of work, Tony, happen that's needed on that site. I don't know exact numbers for cost estimates, and I don't know how much of a bead Starkweather has on that yet either. Colleen, just this is a follow-up to Tony. Do you have any sense of water quality issues in that pond? We know, of course, that Starkweather Creek is contaminated with PFAS from the airport, largely, but any sense of other water quality issues there? I think there are water quality issues in the pond. I personally don't have a lot of detail on that. There are some experts within Save the Farms group. So I encourage people, and I'll say this now and probably at the end if I have time, to to join the Voitcore meetings, we call them. They will kick off in 2023 tomorrow evening from 6 to 8 p.m. on Zoom. If you can't already, you will momentarily be able to see the Zoom link and the meeting on the calendar at savethefarm.net under the events menu tab. And you can click that link and join us. And that's where we talk about some of these details and knowledgeable people show up and, and share that information. Thank you, Colleen. That's Colleen Robinson, uh, interim president of the Madison organization Save the Farm here on A Public Affair. We have another caller. Randy, you're on A Public Affair. Hi, thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to get said that I think what we're dealing with here is trying to balance the needs of the community for this property with the profit imperative of for-profit developers. And that's, that's a valid and 
important balance. But I think some of the things that are being left off of the planning that's been offered so far by the developers reflect the fact that they need to make a profit. And there are aspects of this land that will benefit the community. For example, the agricultural element, as Helen said, that's where they want to put a lot of units of housing. Well, if there were less units of housing, there would be more room for the agricultural. So I just wanted to get that point up about profit for the developer, benefit for the community into the discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Randy. Uh, very well said recognition of a crucial underlying tension in this whole discussion, right? is how do we, in a market-based system, address those needs of the community and the priorities that Colleen has been outlining for us. We just have a few minutes left, Colleen, so I want to make sure you have time to talk about those priorities and the ongoing process a little bit more. Um, What role do you envision Save the Farm having going forward as you collaborate with the developers to achieve as much of this vision that you've laid out for us as possible? Sure. Well, um, let me first mention to Randy's point and others that what we saw on December 8th shows an original community vision of 20 acres of urban farm reduced to 14,000 square feet of community garden and an undefined amount of space to an orchard or other edible landscaping, as well as mention of potential for small community gardens immediately within some of the residential building plots. We saw a desperate need for affordable housing reduced to a mere potential 18% of the buildings on the site which translates to less than 18% of the actual units. It's fantastic. Some of these affordability plans are in townhomes that could be owner-occupied, but the affordable rental space, at least on December 8th, was limited to one three- to four-story building on the site. They're planning to build seven, as well as eight four- to six-story buildings. We heard interest in working with other developers, potentially by selling some of these plots for others to develop, as the entire project is really large for one entity, and especially the affordable housing aspect is handled best by entities like Stonehouse for tax credit housing, but other nonprofit affordable housing organizations, maybe some that are part of third sector in Madison. There's no guarantee or detailed description of how these nonprofit developers for affordable housing would be engaged or how much has already taken place. Um, words like potential and possible were used a lot. We heard that a brick and mortar ecology and community center wasn't feasible maybe food carts and rentable shelter spaces for a community welcome area, but not this commitment to what the community has been resoundingly responding about, which is we need educational space, we need community building space, we need space that connects us to our food. And so I think moving forward, you mentioned collaboration with the developers. So that is something we've been interested in all along. We thought we had it. We are unsure at this point. We really want to hear a formal way that we can engage, not Save the Farm as an organization, but Save the Farm as the community of Madison, as community voices. We need to know how this is going to not be gentrified um, community. We need to know how urban land can be served as urban agriculture. That was Colleen Robinson talking with the public affair host Douglas Haynes about the efforts by Save the Farm to protect the farmland at Voight Farm. Save the Farm is holding a community meeting tomorrow, that's January 10th, at 7 p.m. on Zoom. You can find more details at savethefarm.net. 
Alder Grant Foster and Helen Bradbury from Stonehouse Development also joined in the conversation earlier today. You can hear the full show online at wortfm.org or on the A Public Affair podcast. It's Monday, and that means that feature contributor Harry Richardson brings us two new movie reviews. First is Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, a, what else, murder mystery that's almost as good as the original. Then it's the sequel to one of the biggest movies of the last decade, Avatar, The Way of Water. What he calls one of the best movies of the last year, Richardson says, see it in 3D on the biggest screen possible. Ladies and gentlemen, there's been a murder, and the killer is in plain sight. For at least one person, this is not a game. That was a clip from the trailer for Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, written and directed by Ryan Johnson. This wasn't as good as the original, but it's always watchable and has some interesting twists and turns. Part of the satisfaction of the original, maybe most of it, is the ending, who ends up with the house and fortune of the millionaire novelist. This film has a satisfying ending as well, plus big explosions. Everything about Glass Onion is a critique of excess and its ultimate consequences. The beginning is original and draws us into the story. Set during the beginning of COVID time, four unlikely associates each receive a mysterious, intricate puzzle box. Senator Claire Debola, Catherine Hahn, model-turned-sweatpants businesswoman Birdie J. Kate Hudson, influencer Duke Cody, Dave Batista, and scientist Lionel Toussaint, Leslie Odom Jr. They work together to open the clever puzzle from their mutual friend, an eccentric billionaire, Miles Braun, Edward Norton. When they finally get it open, there's an invitation to join Braun for a murder mystery weekend at his mansion on a Greek island. Oddly, Braun has also invited Andy Brand, Janelle Monet his ex-business partner, who recently lost a lawsuit against the billionaire. Brand amusingly chooses a more direct approach to her package. Enter the world's most famous detective, Benoit Blanc, Daniel Craig, who gets a box as well. He's been too depressed and bored to get out of his bathtub. To make matters worse, he's losing the internet mystery games he's playing. Soon the group, plus Blanc, assemble on a Grecian dock, to be picked up by a real super yacht. No expense was spared in the making of this movie. The four can't believe Brand has come along, let alone a detective. The billionaire Braun seems surprised as well, but their problems are just beginning. All in all, a fun film, well worth watching, if not as good as the original. Next, another long anticipated year-end film that also spared no expense. Why do you come to us? I just want to keep my family safe. That was a clip from the trailer for Avatar, The Way of Water. Co-written and directed by James Cameron, his co-script writers were Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver. The movie has come out 13 years after the original, but it was worth the wait. This is an amazing vision of a far-off world and its people, sort of like us, but better. Come on, who hasn't dreamed of being nine foot tall with a tail, especially after the first film was released? The Navi. Pandora's indigenous people have lived in peace since they sent most of the Earthlings packing in the last movie. Jack Sully, Sam Worthington, the former Marine and hero who led the Navi fight back, now has a family of four children with his Navi spouse, Neytiri Zoe Saldunya. Sully is an avatar. He's been genetically designed by Earth scientists to look like a Navi, but with his memories intact. The avatars were supposed to infiltrate the Navi and help conquer them, but Sully thought better of his mission. Now he has an idyllic life in the forest helping to raise his kids, two brothers and two sisters, Natium, Jamie Flanders, the older son who takes after his dad, and his younger brother, Loak, Britain, 
Dalton, the Rebel. Their sisters are the young Tuck, Trinity Jolie Bliss, and the teenage Kiri. The adopted Kiri feels a mystic connection to her world and her birth mother, the deceased scientist Grace Augustine, played by the great Sigourney Weaver. Weaver, through digital magic, plays Kiri with her unmistakable features de-aged and tinted blue, plus a great tail. And informally, reluctantly adopted fifth child is played by Spider, Jack Chaplin, an impulsive human child who was a baby left behind when the Earthlings withdrew. Spider has been raised by a small cadre of Earth scientists who have also stayed behind. Tragically, the Earthlings return in greater numbers and again set out to exterminate the Navi. Earth has been used up and its people need a new home. Their landing on Navi sets off vast fire and destruction, a scary taste of what is to come. Fast forward a year and Sully and Nateri are again leading a guerrilla action against the invaders. Sully's former commander, Quitrich, or rather his clone with his memories now heads up a group of avatars to take out Sully. To save his family, Sully relocates them to a distant island chain and they join a clan who live off the sea and ride as extraordinary creatures. This is the most striking and immersive part of the movie. Most amazing of all is a kind of armored sentient whale. But this calm doesn't last as Quaritch pursues them. A great movie with truly immersive 3D effects and a heartfelt story. One of the year's best. I highly recommend it. See it in 3D on the biggest screen you can find. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Your reporter was Mike Mowen with the Wisconsin News Connection. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Douglas Haynes with The Public Affair, and Nicholas Leap for technical production. Victor Kelzoni engineered the show, Nate Weggehout produced this newscast, and Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields. And I'm your host, Jonah Chester. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next, it's the most freeform show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Good night.